When Rose writes a letter in hopes of ending the Cold War, she is shocked and delighted to learn it reached the desk of a world leader and they want to talk to her. There's just one little problem. They think the letter's author was a child. Will Rose claim ownership of the letter? Will Sophia figure out a talent for the talent show? Will Dorothy get to make a snowman in June? All of that and more in today's episode, Letter to Gorbachev. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. You're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance and sing, and laugh just doing our thing. No matter the misters that come and go. I hope you know you'll always be my sisters. Today's story is actually inspired by real-life events. In 1982, 10-year-old Samantha Smith of Maine wrote a letter to newly appointed General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, Yuri Andropov. The letter read, Dear Mr. Andropov, My name is Samantha Smith. I am 10 years old. Congratulations on your new job. I have been worrying about Russia and the United States getting into a nuclear war. Are you going to vote in favor of a war or not? If you aren't, please let me know how you are going to help to not have a war. This question you do not have to answer, but I would like it if you would. Why do you want to conquer the world, or at least our country? God made the world for all of us to share and take care of, not to fight over or have one group of people own it all. Please, let's do what he wanted and have everybody be happy too. Samantha Smith Her letter actually got the attention of Yuri and Samantha traveled to the USSR. It was a huge international event. Think of her as the Greta Thunberg of her time. Samantha's fame led to book and television opportunities. Besides interviews on Today, ABC News, and The Merv Griffin Show, Samantha acted in Charles in Charge before getting her own show, Lime Street. Now, there are some weird doubles and intertwined connectedness going on here, so buckle up, Buttercup. Samantha's show, Lime Street, wasn't the biggest hit. Strange it wasn't, as it starred Robert Wagner as an insurance investigator who was widowed and was raising his two kids. Lime Street was competing against a little show called The Golden Girls. That's right, the girl starring in a show because she wrote a letter to a Russian official lost in the ratings to a show that would eventually do a story about writing a letter to a Russian official. Another crossover from last week when we spoke about My Sister Sam and how it was eerie that the theme song started with talking about a mysterious knocking at the door. Well, Rebecca Schaefer of My Sister Sam had been murdered by Robert John Bardo, who had already been in trouble for stalking Samantha Smith. Also eerie, the opening scene of the pilot episode of Lime Street includes a man hiding a bomb on a plane that then explodes and crashes during takeoff. Samantha perished in 1985 when her plane crashed while attempting to land in Maine. The show came to an end, and the episodes were shelved until 1987 when they aired on Lifetime, the same time as this Golden Girls episode. Uh, hey, Alicia. Hi, Coco. That's weird. That's a lot of weirdness. And there were 
rumors or at least thoughts that because of her political involvement, something could have happened to the plane, like it could have been sabotaged. Was that in the 80s? Yes. That was very Very popular in the 80s. Yeah. So there you have it. The story of Samantha Smith. Sitting at the table, Sophia in her multicolored floral dress and blue cardigan is brushing up on her magic skills reading a magic book. There is an actual author named David Wilbur who is a religious writer, but I don't think he's the David Wilbur as featured on the cover of Sophia's current read, Magic Made Easier, which I don't think is a real book, or at least not that exact book. Arriving home, she demands Dorothy's watch as soon as she enters from the garage, backyard, hallway, door area. Forgetting her mother can't be trusted, Dorothy, in light purple pants with a matching top that has two additional shades of purple, gladly hands it over. Placing it in a small Crown Royal-inspired bag, Sophia gives her wand a whirl, and with an abracadabra, the magic word whose origins are unknown, but were first used in the second century, and some believe it stems from the Hebrew words abracadabra, meaning I will create as I speak. Adding a one, two, three, and a smash with a mallet, Sophia's trick is complete. Pulling out an ace of spades from the bag, she's realizing she may not be ready for the big time as she dumps a shattered watch on a conveniently placed plate. Besides it being helpful in telling the time, that watch was special to Dorothy. Stan bought it for her as a wedding present. Well, according to Sophia, if the marriage was busted, the watch might as well be too. Going into the living room, the Patrillos find Blanche, also in head-to-toe purple, hers being of a deeper, more seductive hue, reading a TV guide. Overhearing that, thanks to her lack of magician skills, Sophia doesn't have anything to do for the talent show, Blanche gets excited and wants in. Sophia is happy to remind her that the talent show is for the senior center, and her talent that she's best known for couldn't be done on a stage, or at least not at a family-friendly show. Unable to leave the burn at that, she has to go into oh-boy territory, saying it's not like they are in downtown Saigon. Thanks to the Vietnam War, Vietnam, especially Saigon, experienced a boom in demand for sex workers. There are estimates that there were 300,000 sex workers in the country at the time. As funny as it may be to reference, the ramifications and ripple effect of the STIs, abuse, assault, and pregnant women left behind by soldiers, well, that earns it an oh boy. Even the audience who gives it a half laugh, half oof, knows that that was a rough one. After last year's antics, Dorothy doesn't want her mother to blow it on stage, not like Blanche would, but like screwing up. Okay, no, not like Blanche. She just worried her mother would fail, getting egg on her face like at last year's show. Curious just how bad Sophia did, Blanche asks what talent she attempted. What is she, hard of hearing? She got egg on her face by trying to juggle them. Coming in the door in her all-yellow sunshine cadet dress and brown sash is Rose, and she is clearly distraught. Spotting the grimace on her face, Blanche inquires as to what has her down. Oh, nothing, she casually states as she makes her way to the kitchen. She's just worried about nuclear war. Topical. Relatable. 
Baffled that their dim-witted friend, who just the day before was more concerned about Bubbles the Chimp, who had been adopted from a research facility when he was a baby by Michael Jackson and raised as a child until he became too large and uncontrollable and was sent to a sanctuary for great apes in Florida, where he still lives today, was on tour with him by choice or not. And now she was worried about war. Other things Bubbles the Chimp did? went on tour around the world, sat in the studio while some of Michael's albums were being recorded, sat betwixt Michael and Freddie Mercury when they recorded a duet, he lived in Michael's bedroom, got his own room in a suite when they traveled, was praised on the stand during one of the trials by Michael for his ability to help with all the housework, and he was despised by the housekeepers for taking off his diaper, crawling into bed, and smearing feces on the walls. He even had tea with the mayor of Osaka while in Japan. Bubbles, man. Wow. Did you bring the letter from your boss? There you go. Let me hand it over. Let me see. It comes on MJJ Production Stationery with a moonwalker at the top. It says, Dear Dick, I'm giving Bubbles the night off from his busy schedule so he can come and play on your show. There it is. <laughs> and it, believe it or not, is signed Michael Jackson. All right, now. Running in to check on their friend, they find Rose at the table looking at drawings done by her cadets. Taking a look, Blanche sees herself as Cleopatra, naturally watching from her throne as two naked men wrestle for the honor of getting to sleep with her. Well, that's not really what it was a picture of. One of the kids, an eight-year-old, had made the picture saying it was of the world the day after a nuclear bomb. But she wasn't alone. Three other girls drew similar things. Dorothy, the teacher, totally understands. Between adult conversations and the news, kids are bound to hear about all of it. And being that they can't fully understand what's going on, they need to express their concerns somewhere. Rose just doesn't get it. At that age, she was only worried about getting presents from Santa, how much money she would get from the Tooth Fairy, or the classic concern we've all had, will we ever be chosen as the small curd cottage cheese queen? Perhaps that was part of the Cheese Curd Festival in Ellsworth, Wisconsin. This year, it will host over 6,000 pounds of curd. I don't see anything about a pageant happening, though. Because she wants to sit and finish her coffee, Blanche takes the bait and asks about the Cheese Queen. Well, being the small curd cottage Cheese Queen was nearly the highest honor a St. Olafian could earn. Right after large curd, of course. But enough about the Kurds. There are way more important things to be discussing. Hold for laughter. Like how Rose feels these kids should get to be just that. Kids. They should be excited to grow up, not scared to live. Coco, you were around eight years old when this episode aired. I was just a petite four. Do you have any recollection of feeling stress about the Cold War or just knowing that it was kind of floating around the atmosphere like that well you know you know me i'm i was a fearful boy that's right so yes i was afraid of nuclear war did you have any concept of what the cold war was and what was happening no idea just i just knew that it was heard like, the yeah, keywords yeah they were over there we were over here we don't get along never have never will. and guns are almost drawn yeah yeah it was a scary time did you ever have to hide under a desk? Uh, for earthquake drills. But not for this. No. The most ludicrous drill of all time, the nuclear drill. They would have the 
like lay on the ground and put a jacket over their head and stuff. Right? Basically, my yeah. parents, yeah, my parents would get under their desk as if your little wooden desk is going to do any. I mean, it's funny. My dad still talks about delusion. that. It'll still come up sometimes. And he'll be like, they just had us get under the desk. What did they think they were really going to accomplish by doing that? Except, whoa, I'm piffing over here by instilling stress and concern and anger towards Russians. Yeah, it's like a it's like a psychological game yeah. to make us hate them. Yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's type, a type of propaganda. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Wow. Definitely. Good piff. Thank you. That's short for epiphany. <laughs> Our daughter. <laughs> when Sophia joins, she wants in on the convo. Oh, Blanche tells her, we were just discussing the bomb. This time, Sophia doesn't make a fart joke. Rather, she gets defensive about her new act. How can it be a bomb if you haven't even seen it yet? Realizing the confusion, Dorothy clears it up. No, Ma, we weren't talking about your act. Well, her act is all anyone will be talking about after they see it. And with a swift lifting of her arm, she reveals her newest talent. Sock puppetry? On her hand is a white sock with brown pipe cleaner glasses and red lips. With her little cotton ball wig, the sock shall be called Sophia. The act, which isn't just a puppet but a ventriloquist bit, shall be called Sophia and Sophia. Real Sophia then begins a conversation with Sock Sophia. When Sock Sophia complains of neck pain, Real Sophia laughs about her wrist hurting. It's really something... Happily pointing out the flaws, Dorothy is like, um, your lips were moving. Learning that to be that type of puppeteer, she can't be having that. Sophia is shocked. Well, looks like the Sox days of fame are behind it, and it's time to get back on a foot and cover a corn or a really intense callus. Her joke, comparing that trajectory to that of actress Valerie Harper's, earns a woof from the audience. Rightfully so. That was a spicy joke especially since Betty and Valerie worked together for so long on Mary Tyler Moore and her spinoff, Rhoda. That spinoff spun out, and she soon didn't have a ton of work. That was until the recently discussed Hogan's Family, which had started as her show, Valerie. The audience's reaction to that joke seems to have the girls rather tickled as well, all of them unwilling to make eye contact with anyone else. Giving her friend a hard time for wanting to make things better, Blanche sarcastically asks, nearly with the sass of her, What does he do? Play the piano? What Rose is going to do? Write a letter to President Reagan? Well, no, Blanche, that would be silly. As Rose sees it, Reagan is only half the problem. The other person involved? Mikhail Gorbachev, the then General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in Russia. Now, to discuss the Cold War and Gorbachev in a succinct and accurate manner, even though I have no real understanding of the topic. I will try my best, but please be gentle. I went to public school. After speaking to my dad and asking him for a nutshell explanation of the Cold War, he told me this. After World War II, tensions were still high in regards to Russia's wanting to maybe, like, take over Europe and stuff. Eventually, the United States and Russia were in a nuclear standoff that forced each country to continue to build more and more destructive weapons. By then, there were so many warheads, a move by one of the countries would assure mutual destruction. 
Starting in 1947, the Cold War dragged on, coming to an end finally in 1991. And with that, Rose has decided, with only two weeks before the big camping trip with her cadets, one she doesn't want ruined by Cold War anxiety, she'll need to get to writing her letters immediately. Or at least as soon as she remembers if the spelling of Tsar, an old term for the emperor of Russia or a government person who advises on a specific topic, has one Z or two. It has one. Tsar for the T. What is that for? T-S-A-R. Wow. It's the same. So there's actually zero if you spell it T-S-A-R. And if you spell it the other way, oh my gosh. That was That's what I thought maybe the joke was, is that it isn't, that one isn't spelled with a Z. There's T-S-A-R, C-Z-A-R, T-Z-A-R, or C-S-A-R. And they're, they're like interchangeable? Yeah. Fun fact. Her plan reminds Sophia that Rose is one sock short of a pair, and she's annoyed at herself for having wasted all that time to create sock Sophia when Rose could have played a sock just as well. Well, she actually scandalously says she could have just had her sit on her hand, but this is a family show. Those two weeks have passed as we find Rose telling a ghost story while surrounded by a circle of sunshine cadets, along with Blanche and Dorothy. Sadly, Rose tells a ghost story as well as she spells czar. When one of the children asks, how can the ghost of the indigenous person cry out for help when it's headless? Blanche muses that it probably, like Rose, talks out of its butt. Rose has a nicer answer. The cry is actually from his heart. Well, that is hogwash for little Linda, whose daddy is a doctor. Hearts can't cry. Even when Dorothy tries to remind the child that it's just a fun story that's supposed to be scary, she sarcastically shivers, leading Dorothy, the teacher, to threaten to scare her for real. That threat brings in her other parent, her mother, the lawyer. Dorothy can't help but see the correlations between Linda's family and the Huxtables, the family from The Cosby Show, where Claire Huxtable, Felissa Rashad, was a legal aid attorney, and Cliff, played by Bill Cosby, was a doctor. Not just any kind of doctor, but an OBGYN. Oh boy. Jacqueline Bernstein, playing little Linda, is still acting, most recently in Frontline and Humanity in 2019. That was a return after a long hiatus, her older credits including Blossom, Step by Step, Fresh Prince, Empty Nest, Family Ties, A Very Brady Christmas, The Twilight Zone, Fame, Webster, Highway to Heaven, St. Elsewhere, Poltergeist 2, and as the star of the tear-inducing commercial in Dumb and Dumber. And no one's ever gonna break us apart. That's pretty special. Wow, boy, this is living, huh? Yeah. What's that next? Bored with the fake campout they're doing in the girls' living room, since their official one was canceled due to weather, the girls would like to move from lame stories by firelight to junk food by the light of the television. When the girls try to hold on to the illusion of being in nature, they assure the cadets anything they were wanting to do outside could be done inside. Within about four seconds, that illusion is shattered as one of the girls was looking forward to peeing outside. Something that, fun fact, my mother has never done, and I give her grief for it all the time. How is that possible? Well, she doesn't like camping, and her parents didn't take her camping. Um, I think that's about it. She's not outdoorsy. Camping for her is like 
three-star hotel. We got to get her outside. <laughs> I've had That's it. That's what I've been saying. Cynthia Marie King played Nancy, the little girl who wants to pee outside. She was also in Who's the Boss, Roseanne, Home Ec, Annie McGuire, and Time Bomb. Worried they would be happy to prove them wrong, Blanche panics and demands the kids get away from the couch before they ruin it. Changing the subject, Rose offers some of her cookout food. Beans, jerky, mallows. Uh, cool, but they want really fancy artichoke and shiitake mushroom pizza. You know, like what every kid wants. Rose feels defeated, but Blanche and Dorothy are happy to have her take all of the children out of the house and to the pizza place. Before Rose can finish telling them how to line up or to go get into the mysterious station wagon, they have all run out of the door like screaming maniacs. They're really going to need to do better than that if they want to earn badges for good behavior. And they really won't earn them by flipping off their leader. Exhausted, Blanche and Dorothy happily find quiet in the living room. Blanche has come to the realization she just doesn't have the energy to raise kids, even if she still is at a childbearing age. Just like co-star of The Sid Caesar Show, Imogene Coco, who was only 80 years old at the time of that joke. Technically, Blanche, if she hadn't already gone through the change, would have been of childbearing age. The oldest woman to have a baby by natural means was 59. With only a few seconds of peace, there's someone at the door. Devastated that the kids are already back, Dorothy can relate to the haunting experienced by the family in one of my favorite films, Poltergeist. Dorothy is delighted to find it isn't a gaggle of children, but she's shocked to see that it's Alex Borov from the Russian embassy. Rose's letter actually found its way to Gorbachev's desk, and he would like to meet her. The shock of the statement earns Alexia a spit take from Blanche straight to the face. Alan Rich was a character actor and is appropriately cast in his role as Alexei as he was actually blacklisted in the 1950s during the McCarthy communist hunts. Besides being on that list, he was also on the cast list of Serpico, The Gambler, All in the Family, Kojak, Happy Days, Chips, Square Pegs, Night Court, The Nanny, Two Broke Girls, and 121 other shows and films. After recovering from the secondhand Coca-Cola, Alexi isn't mad. That's the real thing. And back home, due to communist rations, he would have had to wait in line for six hours for less than what was still dripping down his face. Leaving a note for Rose, she has officially been invited to Moscow to talk to leaders about nuclear disarmament, just like Samantha Smith had been. Blanche and Dorothy just look at each other in stunned silence. How can their friend, who confuses the lost city of Atlantis with Atlantic City, where classic teen idol Bobby Venton performed regularly, be the one to bring peace to the world? Sugar is sweet, my love, but not as sweet as you. is back. You pop a couple of these in your mouth, you ain't gonna remember <laughs> You be careful, though. That will put you into a coma. Oh, sorry. It's just Rose. And oh, boy. She's back because as they were driving in the cadet-issued station wagon, she saw that it was a full moon. Regulations state a cadet leader must wear full Native American headdress if there's a full moon. 
Before she can offensively run out of the house with a stereotypical war cry, the girls tell her of the invite and the letter. Unfazed, she's more surprised Reagan didn't already write back since he would have gotten the letter days earlier. Still riding on the oh-boy train, Dorothy follows up the offensive costuming with the use of a Tonto-inspired broken English accent that they are in heap of trouble. She starts by calling Blanche Kimasabi, which is actually a made-up word used by the very problematic Tonto in the Lone Ranger series. Oh, I see. That's right. He was always giving away silver bullets. Silver this, silver that, hi-ho, silver. Oh, Kimasabi have precious metal hang-up. Yes. <laughs> and why did he uh, finally leave? Him find out what Kimosabe well, That would do it, yes. By most accounts, it is a simply made-up, white, bastardized version of American Indian languages. Other studies have concluded there could be other origins. Tonto, in Spanish, means stupid. Quien no sabe is Spanish for one who doesn't understand. So maybe they were just calling each other stupid? It is, well, it's nighttime. It could be that night. Maybe it's a week later. There's just no telling. But Rose is on the couch and she's fallen asleep while watching television. It has gotten to be so late that the signal has come up for the end of the night. As she rolls over, the piercing signal gets to her and we end up going into a dream sequence. A dream sequence. A dream sequence. With a special news report about Rose Nyland making her way around Russia to bring peace to the world, Edwin Newman, the famous newscaster who was so well-known he made appearances as himself on game shows and Saturday Night Live, is filling us in on the last two weeks. So when he retired, he made an appearance on SNL. I don't think he was as well-known as, say, a Walter Cronkite or um, Dan Rather. And so he's there, and the audience doesn't really react to him. So he's sitting there with Joe Piscopo and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. And it is a very uncomfortable skit because Joe Piscopo is, as usual, going way over the top. But it's pretty clear that no one knows who anyone is while they're watching. It's, well, it's cringy, as the kids say. Have a listen. Hey, uh, hey, uh, bartender, two brewskis, huh? Now, tell me about this uh, firing. Uh, retiring. <laughs> well, I'll tell you the truth, Tom. The, the TV news business is a different business these days. It all is. Right, all it right, all right, all right, Ed, I'll go with that. I mean, in your day, an anchorman can also be a critic, a reporter, a commentator. I mean, nowadays, anchormans, the may anchormen, they only do one thing. It's a highly specialized skill. Well, maybe if you call smiling a skill. <laughs> After writing her letter, Rose was invited to and celebrated by the people of Moscow as she gave a speech in Red Square, which has been home to many a parade held by officials who like to get boners watching missiles and military personnel walk down the street. In front of pictures of Lenin and Karl Marx, and herself, Rose happily starts her speech by showing appreciation for the country's fine art, by praising her favorite film, 1965's Russian set, Dr. Zhivago. The spectacle of armies changing history. The epic of a grand romantic age giving way to a new and violent order. The drama of young lovers. Far from the bitter guns of war. Alone and silent. As the crowd celebrates, she brings up her friends. No, not President Ronald Reagan, but Dorothy, 
who has enjoyed her time in the beautiful country, extending an olive branch, she's realized that besides the many layers of warm clothes they have to wear, they live pretty similar lives. Well, the toilet paper is pretty different. RBTH.com informs us that there was a toilet paper factory that opened in the USSR in 1969, but it took a long time for the large population to all have access. Some people had to resort to using the brown wrapping paper used for packages. That would leave a grimace on any face. Sometimes the line for toilet paper would be 100 people long. If anyone was lucky enough to get to buy the limit of 10 rolls, they would carry them home around their neck like a massive candy necklace of pride. Or us at the beginning of the pandemic. Taking the mic in a classically stunning white jacket and fur hat and muff, feeling the moment, and being portrayed in the dream as Rose sees her, Blanche breaks into a Marilyn Monroe-inspired happy birthday to you. Finishing her performance, Blanche is pushed aside by Sophia, who hitched a ride with a German kid, which is probably due to the fact that commercial flights to the USSR from the U.S. weren't available until April of 1986. In her yellow robe and bonnet, Sophia basically does a stand-up bit, praising the weather and giving appreciation to the fact that she hasn't seen any bugs, just the ones in the embassy, like bugs, as in wiretapping, which had been discovered in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow in 1986. Wrapping up her performance, Rose thanks the crowd, quotes a different Lenin, and starts to wake back up. We're back to reality. Dorothy and Blanche have found Rose having a vivid dream on the couch. All in their robes, Rose happily wakes up to share about her dream. Everyone was excited, they gave powerful speeches, and their fur was fake. Rose's excitement is all mixed up in her nervousness about the real press conference. She's never done anything like that, and she isn't sure how it will go. Blanche promises her it will be fine. All the people that will be there are just that. People. They aren't any different than them. They put their pants on one leg at a time, just like everyone else. Okay, not everyone. It's hard to imagine the fitness coach, journalist, writer, and first trainer to use kettlebells, Steve Maxwell, doing so. Stack four more. Good. Three more. Good. Get reset. And rest. As you can see, a very, very difficult exercise. When the form begins to break down, simply stop. Dorothy, getting things back on track, reminds Rose that they want to talk to her about her views, so there's nothing to worry about. Before they can comfort her any further, Sophia and her new act have arrived. And it's a classic. As rough as the start of the season has been, I feel like this scene is one of the better moments and gives us a glimpse of things to come. Take it away, Sophia. Thanks for the Medicare. <laughs> For a blue cross and blue shield, for a hip that finally healed. Remember, on prescriptions, generic is a steal. We thank you so much. Well, the singing wasn't the best. The topic was a bit of a downer. The girls, well, they hated it. It was awful, depressing, and stinky. 
always one to take constructive criticism well, Sophia responds to their response with, go to hell. Hosting a press conference in their living room, Blanche, in a blue blouse with large black polka dots and black skirt, is exhilarated by the news she learned from a reporter. There is snow in Russia during the summer, and as a whole, their women aren't very attractive. Rude. That's not an oh boy, but just rude. This means that Dorothy, in a beige and cream blouse with black pants, can live her dream of making a snowman in June. And while she's busy doing that, Blanche can have her pick of any man in the country. It's a win-win. Alexi is ready to meet Rose, the daughter of Dorothy. But she's not there right now. She's getting her cadets, who Alexi believes are her friends. That's because they think Rose is only about nine years old. Unable to break the news to Alexi, Dorothy jokes that Rose is closer to ten, which is technically true. Panicking, the girls go into the kitchen, offering Alexi tea, coffee, a pair of Levi's. They weren't illegal, per se, in Russia, but they were Western, scandalous, and coveted. Currently, Levi's has suspended their commercial operations in Russia due to their invasion of Ukraine. Now their confusion as to why the Russians were so moved by her letter all makes sense. Blanche and Dorothy don't want Rose's feelings hurt and they really don't want her stupidity to be used as propaganda against America. If that were to happen, the entire foundation of America's democracy could crumble. Dorothy figures Blanche's patriotism is coming from her love of Rocky IV. Coco, you ready for some Rocky talkie? Can you explain to the listeners that maybe haven't seen Rocky IV why Blanche would feel so patriotic after having watched it? Yes. So Rocky IV begins just after Rocky Balboa has defeated Clubber Lang, played by Mr. T, in Rocky III. There's a new Russian fighter on the streets of Russia, but he wants to come into America and fight, and he wants to have a big fight against the champion who is now Sylvester, well, Rocky Balboa. But instead, Apollo Creed, the former champion who defeated Rocky in the first one and then lost to him in the second one, he's going to do the the, uh, exposition bout against Ivan Drago. They go to Vegas. There is a fight. Apollo Creed is killed in the ring (gasps) by Ivan Drago, who is just a Superman Russian man, super Russian. Is he killed like with a weapon or just with a punch? Yeah. Yeah. Ivan Drago kills Apollo Creed in the ring with a punch. Whoa. Ivan Drago is technologically advanced in his training and I think probably steroided up. He's played by Dolph Lundgren. He's huge. And at the end, Rocky Balboa fights Ivan Drago in Russia on Christmas Day. Well, when the fight begins, the crowd is booing Rocky. They're like, you are stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Et cetera. Rolls off the tongue in a cheering crowd. But as the fight progresses, their allegiance switches from Ivan Drago to Rocky Balboa because of how inspiring his performance has been. And in the end, he knocks out Ivan Drago. That's how he wins. And when he's giving his speech in the ring, like he always does, he says, If I can change, and you can change, everybody can change. And then I believe there's a freeze frame. Rocky IV came out in 1985. The Berlin Wall came down in 1989. That's all I'm saying. Coincidence? I think not. 
there's also Rocky is so wealthy in part four that he has a, a robot butler that he gives to his uh, brother-in-law, Polly. Is that like some 80s technology where they're like, oh, I'll get that cool thing in the movie somehow? Well, apparently he used it. Uh, Sylvester Stallone owned this robot and he used it to I know it sounds funny, but he used it as like a, a communication device for his son, who I think had a learning disability or a communication oh. disability. So it's very stupid in the movie. But it's it's actually it pretty cute. It served a real purpose yeah. in, in the real world. I also watched the director's cut of Rocky Four yesterday. I watched both I watched the same movie twice in the same day. And it's a completely different cut of the original Rocky Four. And I highly recommend it. If you're interested in Rocky Four, watch Ivan or Rocky versus Drago, and then watch the original. Because I I'd actually I started I almost started crying when Apollo Creed died in this version. In the director's cut? Yeah. It really got to me. And that's new, right? It's it's, it's the old footage, but newly edited? Yeah, it's completely recut. So all the se- many of the sequences are just, well, some of them are slightly different, and a lot of them are just completely different. Which one's better? Director's cut. Really? Rocky versus Drago was awesome. And it looked great, too. It was it was remastered. It just looked awesome. Wow. And I think he's, when he's saying that he can change, I think he's saying because he found a way to to fight for a different reason. I think because Apollo Creed was fighting for pride mm. because he was a retired fighter. People say he's a has-been. And Rocky needed to figure out why he was fighting. And so I think it was to change. end communism. I think so. And he he also trains in a different manner. He tra- he goes to Russia like in the snow and is like chopping logs mm. and carrying rocks and stuff like that, growing a beard. It's funny that Blanche worries about Rose being used as propaganda as if the U.S. wasn't a country or isn't still a country of propaganda. It's not state-sanctioned where it's brochures being left on your door, but... Well, there's FBI. We certainly have it. Yeah, there's, there's, there's plenty of... It's called of, Rocky Four. I mean, our TV shows everything. Yeah. Our CSI, NCIS, Criminal Minds, <laughs> Rookie Blue, Blue Bloods, Chicago PD, Chicago Med. They're trying to get us to do those jobs. <laughs> and I won't... Have it. <laughs> That's the propaganda. Come be a detective. Or like in the army, you know, they, there's like SEAL team oh, on CBS yeah. or like F, you know, I said FBI four times already. <laughs> yes, you did. The F is for four. Returning home with the cadets in a very blah, light purple, gray suit, Rose is still in disbelief that she is about to go out to do an international press conference. Dorothy finds it as hard to believe as God becoming involved with evangelical televangelist conman whose PTL or Praise the Lord Church, the name of which you may recognize from being home of Jim and Tammy Faye, was facing financial trouble. Even though they didn't have to pay taxes and were being given buckets of money, they were $68 million in debt. Calling upon their victims, I mean followers, He promised that if a thousand people donated a thousand dollars a day, he would show his gratitude by going down a water slide in a suit. By the time the fundraising ended, Jerry and company had raised an unbelievable $20 million. Sitting at the top of the 163-foot slide, Jerry didn't seem so confident in his being protected. But down he went, and I guess those that donated were happy to see him have fun in exchange? Did I mention I hated the guy and everything he stood for? You know, just in case you couldn't tell. Oh, 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 oh. It's cold. Well, I'm, I'm ready. Go for it. 
I'm ready. Unable to stop Rose from going 100 miles an hour about what she should talk about and if she should tell the story of the time her uncle attempted to milk a porcupine, which, fun fact, can be done if you encounter a female who is lactating. Just as the girls tell her the truth about the misunderstanding, Alexi is there, ready to take her to the stage. In the room full of women and girls, he isn't sure which one was the author of the letter. As they all look around in a panic, Blanche grabs smart Alec Linda and proclaims that she is Rose, the child who wrote the letter. Embarrassed and devastated, Rose sits at the table as Linda is ushered out. Before she leaves, she makes sure she'll still earn all her badges, since even she knows what she's doing is a lie. Once everyone is in the living room, Alexi shares his excitement about the letter, and as Linda starts to walk forward, Rose stops her. Linda's words resonated with her. She is a sunshine cadet, and that means you're honest. Taking to the podium, Rose spills. She wrote the letter. She's sorry for the confusion, but not for how she felt. Before she can say more, Alexi calls the conference off, and he's going to be staying in Miami under a new identity, Dave. Keep an eye on his glasses that, in one second, he's tucking into his pocket, and in the next shot, they are back on his face. With that, the ambassador and journalists scamper out the door. This was news reporter Steve Craig's only acting job. He worked more often in the casting department. Blanche and Dorothy are quick to be by Rose's side, celebrating the bravery it took for her to do that. Feeling like a national joke, Rose is totally distraught. But it isn't her fault they misunderstood the letter. Her feelings were genuine, and all she wants is for the world to feel safe for her kids. Besides, her mother will understand. She's from St. Olaf. Even if Rose is a chucklehead in her own eyes, she's Blanche and Dorothy's chucklehead, and they'll love her through all of it. Tired of cheering her on, Blanche passes the baton of friendship to Dorothy. Dorothy continues to shower her with praise. You wrote a beautiful letter. You brought the world together, and they wanted to hear what you had to say. The girls would love for her to read her letter. It's not like today can get any worse. Handing it over to Blanche, she reads it aloud. The sweet, sincere honesty in the letter is touching to all of them. Blanche can hear the sadness and desperation that Rose is feeling. There is nothing to be embarrassed about, just someone who is scared and protective. She wants the leaders to talk, to get rid of their bombs, and put the world at ease for a while. She suggests things can be fixed by calling President Reagan, just not in the afternoon. As much as Nancy Reagan vehemently denied the rumors of Ronnie's napping, he was able to make jokes about it even though he was pretty embarrassed. Although he shouldn't be, some of the greatest minds we have ever known were quite fond of an afternoon nap, myself included. Reagan maybe didn't like that he was a napper, but he loved that he was a joke teller. I don't know whether you know it or not, but I have a new hobby. I've been I am collecting, collecting stories, stories that are told in the Soviet Union actually by their told people among themselves. Which reveal they they've got a great sense of humor, but they've also got a pretty cynical attitude toward their system. And they've also got a little cynical attitude about things in their country. I didn't tell this one to Gorbachev. One of these stories, the one I'm going to tell you, I told to General Secretary Gorbachev. Oh, I can't resist. I'm supposed to quit right here. You know, there's a 10-year delay, delay in the Soviet Union of delivery of an automobile. Laid down his money, and then the fellow he was in, that was in charge said to him, OK, come back in 10 years and get your car. And he said, morning or afternoon? <laughs> And this happened to a fellow, and this is their story that they tell, this joke. You know, 
less than one family out of seven in the Soviet Union owns an automobile. Well, he said, who was it? He said, I couldn't recognize him, but his driver was Gorbachev. Well, he answered, I just want you to know that I don't agree with a thing my parrot has to say. And one of them says, have we really achieved full communism? Is this it? Is this now full communism? And the other one said, oh, hell no. It's, things are going to get a lot worse. And the Polish dog said, what's meat? And the Russian dog says, what's bark? Hearing the beauty of Rose's letter, the audience applauds and the girls celebrate her. When the phone rings, Blanche answers, but it's for Rose, and it's President Reagan. With a quick conversation, Rose is off. She simply must get to her diary and write down that not only did the president call, but he did so because he loved her letter. All is well now. Rose feels at peace. The world might find peace. And Sophia has finally figured out what talent is good enough for the talent show, her Ronald Reagan impersonation. It worked flawlessly on Blanche and Rose already over the phone. Kudos to Sophia here. For once, she isn't trying to use her phone antics to get something from someone. Rather, she was actually trying to make Rose feel better. Politics, war, and fragile egos are hard to maneuver. It's okay if you don't fully understand the intricacies of global war. Even if you don't comprehend every aspect, you still have the right, no matter how childish it may be perceived as, to express your fears and concerns and ask questions. The best thing you can do for your kids or friends is to talk about those fears. Allowing space for those feelings to be expressed can help to alleviate those concerns and questions can be answered. It's unfortunate how topical this episode is. Here we are, 35 years after it aired, still fearful of nuclear war, relations with Russia, and the feeling of instability all of it brings. To help Ukraine citizens who have been affected by the Russian invasion, you can visit unicefusa.org, Sunflowers for Peace on Facebook, or Google other groups that are providing help. But please be cautious. Only donate to verified organizations. There have been multiple fraudulent charities taking advantage of those wanting to help. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we get to continue dabbling in the political world with Strange Bedfellows. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Ow. Sitting at the table, Sophia in her multicolored floral dress and... I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Turned out the volume was still up when I Before started you playing my monkey balloon game. <laughs> Gotta pop these balloons. No more delays, please. <laughs> I don't like jokes. I don't Maybe like feel stupid. jokes. There are estimates that there are estimates that at the time of the war there were third. Whoa. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I was a scared horse. These monkeys are able to pop so many balloons. And then I have like a mega monkey, mega boomerang monkey right now. They are rising to kill us. And I launch the monkeys down. Are you a human and you're throwing monkeys? Watching from her throne as two naked men wrestle. I assume I'm some sort of god monkey. I'm ready to go into lots of debt. I made so many good choices after high school. <laughs> when Sock Sophia complains of neck pain, Plane. Hey. I literally peed outside four nights ago.
<sighs> Coco star. Oh, you're my Coco star. Children, but shocked to see that it is Alex Borov from the from the newscaster who was so well known he made appearances as himself on game shows and Saturday Night Live. Piscano. Sorry, Joe. We say no. You know how them them is. Ah, you don't even know. <laughs> okay, <laughs> take it easy. Hosting a press conference in the lit. Blanche and Dorothy don't want Rose's feelings hurt, and they really don't want her stupidity. Blanche and Dorothy don't want Rose's feelings hurt, and they really don't want her stupidity to be. If I could change, you could change. Everybody could change. <laughs> Dorothy finds it as hard to believe as God wanting evangelical tele televa. Jerry didn't seem so confident in his. <laughs> justice for Jerry. <laughs> How dare you? Yeah, justice. Besmirch. Yeah, justice for Jerry. He was never brought to justice. Get him. That's what I say. Get him. That's what I meant. As much as Nancy Reagan Vietnam. <laughs> as much as Nancy Reagan Vietnam. <sighs> Vietnam. Oh my God. Vehemently. Vehemently. Thank you. Vehemently. I use this word. I say this word. Even if you don't fully... Blah, 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 blah. Here we are, 35 years after it aired. Steer... F <laughs> steer fearful. But please be cautious. There have... <laughs> Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.